0: 3CR Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonrong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast.
1: Oh, yeah. Alternative News, Analysis Clap and Current Affairs, Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am.
2: Good morning, Claudia. Good morning, Ella. And it's Wednesday again.
0: Yes, that's right. Last day of August. So does that mean winter is officially over after
2: uh, today? Is that how? I think technically. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as we've we've said many times, we don't hold our breath, but uh, it will all look better on the calendar when it says September.
0: Yeah, um, it, it feels good to know you're on the way towards the summer. Upward. Yeah, <laughs> on the upward. I never know. Is it the uphill or downhill stream when it's going well? Uh, well, it depends if you're a summer person or a winter person. <laughs> how have you been? Yeah, I've been good. I um, yeah was uh, working all last week, so as I told you, I sometimes... I'm a disability support worker and I sometimes stay with uh, one of the people I support uh, when his parents go away, so I was um, kind of mum of the house for the week, or dad, whichever one, um, so it's always an Both. interesting experience. <laughs> yes, mum and dad. <laughs> it's a full-time job, let me tell you.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about parenting this morning, but uh, we'll come to that later. Interesting. <laughs> So was that an uphill or a downhill experience? Oh, definitely a bit of both, I think.
0: (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it was um a nice experience. But uh, yeah, always nice coming back to your own house at the end. I think. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well,
2: yeah, parents don't always get no, absolutely (laughs) um, shared parents, perhaps. But uh, yes. Uh, And I got off to the Forum for Dwelling Justice last Friday, which was excellent, uh, at the Capitol Theatre in Nam and it was very well attended. There were lots of people streaming through from 1pm when it started, and uh, yeah, right through to the end, and very, very stimulating, engaging discussions, and a really good energy in the room. And just really uh, inspiring to see so many people from different um, different areas of these intersecting subjects of, of homes, prisons and uh, Indigenous land justice and different age groups and students and academics and uh, activists. Yeah, so a really good gathering and really important to bring the discussion back to the foundation sort of systemic problems that underlie what we're seeing today with with uh, so many areas of our social justice landscape
0: yeah yeah and it was a big event right so it um, went over the whole afternoon the first section was panel yeah there there were three
2: panel uh discussions and two or three keynote addresses and then at the end there were some more panel discussions following uh the uh playing of some documentary films one of which was bendigo street which we featured last week and the the documentary filmmakers were part of those panels so they were able to talk about uh the films and uh, the way they interacted and represented the actions uh that took place in those films so yeah Mm.
0: And you stayed for the whole event you got to? I unfortunately wasn't able to (laughs) (laughs) stay for
2: the actual film but I did stay right through till 5.30 and, uh, yeah, so I caught all the panel discussions and, of course, 3CR was uh, recording the event so I'm sure we'll be able to bring our listeners some uh, sections of the panel discussions so we can have some more chats on the show and and hear what the different panellists... Had to say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm keen to get
2: my hands on some of the recordings mm, yeah, from Yeah, it day. was really, really excellent. And um, yeah, I'm quite excited to listen through again too. Oh, yes. good. Yeah. And speaking of August the 31st, <laughs> I <laughs> randomly came across one of those sites on the website with famous birthdays. So I thought Ooh. I've got to have a little bit of a <laughs> rundown of who was born on this day. So we have Van Morrison the uh, Irish singer and songwriter, Richard Gere, who needs no introduction. (laughs) But the interesting one I um, noticed was Maria Montessori, the educator. Ah, um, creator of the Montessori schools. (laughs) And the part that caught my eye was that uh, she was a doctor before she was an educator, and so I read on. <laughs> and uh, yes, so she was born in 1870 when I imagine there weren't very many female doctors around. <laughs> no. And her parents actually wanted her to become a teacher, but she really wanted to become a doctor. So she pers- pursued that aspiration but was refused entry into medical school, but somehow managed to get the endorsement of the Pope, Pope Leo VIII. Oh, wow. And she got into the University of Rome and became one of the first women uh, in medical school in Italy. Oh, wow. Yeah, really interesting. And then she did all these amazing things. So, yeah, through her medical career, she became involved in the women's rights movement and she became known for the respect she showed to patients from all social classes And she had a deep interest in the needs of children with learning disabilities. And I think it was from that base or window that she started to develop her educational philosophy, which became known as the Montessori method. And as we know, it's grown widely across the world. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, Yeah. it was interesting. Um, Yeah, she ended up living in Spain and then fascism came along in Europe and the Nazis closed all the... Montessori schools in Germany and then Mussolini did the same in Italy and so she and her son fled uh, Europe and they ended up in India of all places and she continued her work developing the education and promoting her philosophy but as an Italian citizen she was actually put under house arrest by the British government during World War II Oh wow! Mm, what a so life. quite a dramatic, <laughs> yeah, life story. Um, yeah, but a very obviously persistent woman because after she got out of the house arrest situation, she went on to train over a thousand Indian teachers.
0: Oh wow! How incredible! Mm. And um, I'm yeah, only very vaguely familiar with the concept behind um, Montessori schools. Uh, do you know any of the? kind of principles behind it and
2: i think the basic principle is that rather than being curriculum led it's child led and so it's uh, learning through the child's natural development developmental stages and their own curiosity for learning so yeah as opposed to giving a a set uh, task and expectation and that might come from curriculum based learning so yeah, they often have classrooms which have children of multiple ages, which, which means that, yeah, we don't always learn just in a yeah. year as we do in mainstream schools. And so the classrooms yeah, and, and class groupings are organised differently. And yeah, as I said, it's a lot more inquiry-based learning and, uh, and less uh, fed curriculum.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense if um, she had an interest in um, children with a learning disability and how they learn that you would then notice all the different ways that um, certain education systems don't suit all
2: different exactly. learning Exactly, so you can work to the individual and also uh, work with what that individual's really interested in because yeah, if you're engaged with a subject and it's got a sense of purpose, you're much more likely to want to pursue it and yes absolutely so uh, yeah anyway that was a little bit of oh that was good we should do more uh, on this days (laughs) in the morning i like it (laughs) and uh, speaking of this day um we've got a show for our listeners
0: yeah Shall we get through the rundown for the morning
2: (laughs) yeah absolutely so we're starting off uh, first segment with a uh, listen to little Barto, who's a community organizer from wage peace and Wage Peace is an organisation which opposes the militarisation of STEM education and a calling for weapons companies to be banned from schools. And Lil's going to tell us about a recent action in Mianjin, Brisbane, where about 20 protesters disrupted a STEM education and defence conference. So that's uh, a good one uh, to hear this morning. And that will be followed by Julie Bornenkoff the CEO of the parent support group Panda Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia and she's going to be talking about the mental health supports for fathers and families in the lead up to Father's Day this Sunday.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I'll have to remember to call my dad. <laughs> He's um, over visiting his parents in England at the moment actually but um, I'll uh, still stick by the Australian Father's Day just him being overseas. <laughs> And um, yeah, later on in the show, just before eight o'clock, we're going to hear from uh, James on In Your Face, 3CR's program. Uh, and he caught up with Living Positive Victoria CEO Richard Keane. Um, they spoke about the MPXV, um, so that's the monkeypox vaccine, uh, from a living with HIV perspective. Um, so yeah, it was a really good interview. Be good to hear more. Um, And then a bit after eight, I'll be joined by Carly Finlay. So she's an award-winning writer and activist, uh, speaker and appearance activist. Um, And she's going to talk to us about Alter State, which is a disability arts festival. Um, It's its first year in Victoria and it's uh, starting at the end of September. Um, It's a really exciting program. And yeah, it's a mix of um, online and in-person events. Um, So it'd be good to hear more.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, And yeah, Carly's obviously a 3CR favourite for interviews. I noticed she's uh, got a photo in our hallway that we walk past every
2: Wednesday morning, so it'll be good to catch up with her. Absolutely. Melbourne needs as many festivals. Yes. We like the festival city of Australia, so bring bring it on. All
0: right, um, but we might get started with a song this morning. Um, This is Maya with A Better Woman.
3: My father always said I am too trusting, too naive But I never wanted him to stifle my dreams My mother's worried how I'll pay the rent But I'm learning to be a better woman I can't afford all my therapy And I don't know if it's giving me more clarity Or more anxiety about What the hell is wrong with me But I'm wanting to be a better I'm learning to listen to my body when it's done I'm learning to trust my gut when something is wrong I'm learning to accept myself as I am I'm learning to be So I gave it to myself, and I am so proud of the life I built. He missed the winter, but I'm glad I stayed and paid.
1: This month, Melbourne's beloved art house Cinema Nova turns 30 and is inviting you to celebrate. Revisit Cinema Nova favourites with a curated programme of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Sipalla Italiano, and more. Tickets on sale now. Cinema Nova, Melbourne's favourite independent cinema since 1992. A 3CR supporter.
0: You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard Maya with A Better Woman.
2: And now we're going to go to an interview with Lil Barto, a community organiser from Wage Peace. Lil Barto will be discussing an action that was held on the 15th of August, very recently, when about 20 people from Mianjin disrupted a STEM education and defence conference. And as I said before, Wage Peace uh, opposes the militarisation of STEM education and are calling for weapons companies to be banned from schools. So uh, we'll hear now from Lil Barto, And uh, she spoke to Emma Crunch from the radio active show 3CR. And the first question Emma asked her was to introduce herself. So we're going to hear from Lil Barto.
4: Yeah, my name's... Lily, I've been a community organiser for um, a fair few years now. And um, I organise at the moment, uh, among other things, with a network called Wage Peace. And uh, we do basically all things anti-militarism, um, pro-peace, pro-planet. Uh, so one of the messages that we try to push in general discourse in australian politics is that um the resources that we spend on the military would be better spent elsewhere and we try to push back against the kind of cultural idea that war is inevitable and unavoidable mm. um and we really work to uh like center the stories of people who are particularly who are who are affected directly by militarized violence um so we our solidarity focus is with West Papua um we have one organizer who speaks bahasa fluently so she's in regular contact with West Papuan organizers um great yeah
1: um thanks for that Description of Wage Peace and the important work you're doing. Um, I like the name too. Like it's an active name, um, not just opposing more, but kind of waging peace. It's um, mm, yeah.
5: yeah.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Describe, describe I didn't. I didn't
4: come up with it, but I like it too. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um. So recently, just this week, um, Wage Peace and perhaps others community members have uh, interrupted a summit. Um, which is about Defence and STEM, which stands for the Science, Technology, Engineering and Maths in Education. Yeah. Um, how, what was this, summit, um, this summit's purpose and how did you find out about it and decide that it would be a good event, um, an important event to intervene in?
4: The summit was hosted by Australian Defence magazine, uh, which not only publishes a magazine, but it sort of runs, it does run events quite a bit that are intended as sort of networking things for the defence industry. Um, This particular summit was focused on giving people from the weapons industry and the defence forces an opportunity to talk to people in the education system uh about ways to develop more, they like to call them industry partnerships. So that's when a school uh, in some sort of relationship that can be a direct sponsorship, it can just be an agreement, it can sort of take a variety of forms. um, But a school works with a private corporation to uh, deliver particular sets of curriculum outcomes. Um, And we've seen a really... There are, there is an alarming amount of these industry partnerships, uh, forming between weapons companies and schools, particularly around the delivery of, yeah, the STEM curricula. And, um, we thought that this was an important one to intervene in because, uh, that's where the deals happen, you know, like at conferences and summits like that, those, those handshakes are worth a lot. And the conversations that happen, you know, in the breaks and stuff, are, um, you know, that's that's where a lot of the moving mm. and shaking in the world, you know, happens at conferences like that. Um, could
1: ask. I'm really. I'm curious about who is making those agreements. Like, who who is in um, attends these conferences? Like, is it actually um, education department or staff from schools, principals, or and then. Um, executives of those companies or do you have insight into how what that looks like yeah
4: so another reason that we thought uh this was a good one to disrupt is that it wasn't really aimed at regular teachers or principals of schools um it was the it cost i can't remember the exact number but it was around about a thousand dollars a person to send someone to this conference Mm. um so there were representatives from yeah, like you were saying there were representatives from lots of major weapons companies there were a couple of um i don't know if they were generals but they looked they were they went in in their uniform and they looked very important and flash um <laughs> defense personnel um and it would be more people like big wigs in the department of education and uh there were there was definitely at least one representative of TAFE from uh TAFE there mm. uh but we particularly you know we didn't want to give regular teachers a hard time about it um because we understand the way that you know if someone and you know teachers are facing like so much pressure and um uh, you know they've they've been um campaigning through their own unions in like i live in new south wales there's been like big union campaigns lately, and, um, you know, if someone hands you a ready-made educational program that allows you to be like, cool, that's like a whole chunk of the curriculum that I can just tick off, of course you're going to take people mm. up on that.
1: Especially if um, it's lot well-resourced of- and funded.
4: Oh, absolutely, and it's well-resourced and you get to, you know, and, and that's really what... I find quite like insidious about the way these weapons companies operate to deliver these programs is you know they're preying on overstretched teachers who are not really in a position to turn something like that down and they have so much money to throw at it that it's nothing for them but you know to have like a robotics competition where everything is paid for and whatnot Mm -hmm. you know and like of course teachers want to give kids opportunities like that but what we're trying to so uh what we're trying to promote is like also really platforming alternatives to that and like positive things that are happening in the STEM education space that focus on things like renewable energy or health technologies or mm-hmm. sustainable agriculture and those sorts of things that are you know giving young people the skills that they'll need to actually solve the problems that the world faces rather than create more problems and engineer more death and suffering.
1: Mm, Thanks. Yes, it's it's important to remember that it's not the problem with STEM educational curriculum or the idea of bringing those subjects together of science and technology and engineering and maths, but um, what those skills may be used for with the um, defence and So a really good point to have that argument about what STEM could be well, then, towards,
4: yeah. And on that point, like that's exactly what we find so concerning. Like I'm a physics graduate myself. Um, I've always loved science and been really passionate about it. Um, but what is really distressing to me about the idea of weapons companies influencing the way that STEM education is delivered is science is apolitical when it's not contextualized, right? So an example that I always use is the discipline of nuclear physics is apolitical. Its application to bombing Japan in World War II is absolutely and unavoidably political. But you need to, in order to be a, you know, whole functioning adult in the world, you need to be able to contextualise your scientific knowledge Um, and you might end up with all these skills but you need to be able to put those, like, you know, implement those in the world in some way that's going to be positive. And when we have these weapons companies doing these these modules, there is a, per- a part of the curriculum that states that there's supposed to be some ethical discussion around um, contentious technology or, you know, technologies that have uh, controversial applications like drone technologies, AI, things like that. And we're, we find that very often in these weapon-sponsored ones that is completely left out. So kids just get presented with this, like, oh, cool, robots,
1: cool,
4: mm. um, with no kind of let's talk about what this technology means in the world and how it actually exists in relationship to other things, um, which, you know, like doesn't, I don't think that does those students any favors, and it doesn't do society any favors either. Mm.
1: The way the programs are implemented, do you think that it's um, the intention of the defense, or the or the military, the um, militarized companies, is to build skills that will be um, useful for them in their perpetuating, yeah, militarizing and spending for a workforce, I guess, I'm wondering, is there a sense of direct recruiting into Defence or those companies, or is it sort of to build the skills that later they would seek or need in a workforce?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, absolutely. Uh, So they set out their intentions quite, so the Department of Defence, put out uh there's a number of documents um if you go to the wage peace website we've just put up a background briefing Mm -hmm. um on this subject it's a bit of a how did we get here kind of story um which links to a whole bunch of um documents that have been put out by the department of defense that are sort of like how are we going to grow the defense industry and just for those of us playing at home grow the defense industry means Make more bombs, make more guns, make more weapons. Um, But grow the industry is a nice, like, little shiny throw you can put over that and make Mm. it sound all very innocuous. Yeah, way back in 2017, sorry, 2016, Defence White Paper, they identified um, sourcing and retaining the future workforce as a major challenge. And then, as these documents go on, I I'm, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's called something like Strategic Workforce Vision 2017. Uh, that one is probably the most clear statement of their intentions. Where they their language for it is securing the talent pipeline. Uh, we like to call it STEM washing. Mm. <laughs> they are quite explicit mm-hmm. about their intention that they were like we need to intervene in education to get more young people to choose STEM careers in order for us to have a work, like, secure a workforce to grow this industry.
1: Mm. And obviously it's different to perhaps, yeah, decades ago where that means turning up at the careers fair. I guess the Mm. specific, you know, it's different in a way to recruiting traditional, like, soldiers that we think of
4: So the Medical Association for the Prevention of War did a really good report on this subject called Miners and Missiles. Um, And there's a quote from, uh, she's like the chairman or one of the directors or something of BAE Systems where it was like, uh, you know, young people can sometimes have a negative view of the defence industry. (laughs) And it's like, oh, really? (laughs) yeah like wow young people you know potentially want to build solar panels not bombs
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and all the more insidious if it's uh not just yeah probably these programs aren't delivered by you know people in military um identifying gear or anything that's the nature of it being more insidious and subtle than um yeah yeah absolutely
4: but um, and Mapwine tends to update that report I'm told, and oh okay. uh, great yeah and put out uh put a lot more rigor into explaining sort of the research and and everything that's been done into positive brand association in children's so pretty much throughout their adulthood once you've formed that and it's exactly the same principles and exactly the same psychology it's like or you went and had like an awesome excursion building robots with your friends at the, you know, Lockheed Martin Institute of Learning at the University of whatever. Mm. Like <laughs> and then, you know, that and then that contextualizes for you as you're growing up, like what that company's role in the world is and what it actually yeah, what it does and how it relates to to the world and gives you this impression that it's um yeah that it cares about about your education when you know it probably it obviously didn't care about the education of the children on the bus you know in Yemen when the Lockheed Martin missile struck it like it didn't care about those edu- those children's education
1: mm-hmm. yes very stark um mm-hmm. I guess finally Lil uh were you I'm wondering how the, how the experience of the action was were you actually there or? Could you um, tell us a little bit about how, how it went down on the day when you intervened in the summit?
4: Yeah, I was there. I was very lucky to be in town for that because I'm not normally around Brisbane. But um, it's a really interesting experiment a lot of the time to take space like that and how, how little you actually have to do to sort of wrestle control of the space, like sometimes just by being in it you can feel that the organisers know they have lost control of the space and it terrifies them. <laughs> it makes them really uncomfortable. And we were not, you know, we did some chanting and we did some singing and stuff like that, um, but no one actually uh, really hard blocked anyone getting it. it was, you know, people would sort of stand in a doorway, but you know, no one aggressively, like, you know, pushed anyone out of the space or anything like that. Um, But people just already know, like, you know, the minute you're in there and you've broken the kind of, like, social code of conduct, you can feel that, like, it's it's, it's a really empowering feeling, right, because you've really, like, wrestled control of those people. and And, like, now it's your space. Now it's your you know, stage piece basically.
2: And that was Lil Bartow, community organiser from Wage Peace, talking about the recent action in Mianjin uh, where they uh, disrupted a STEM education and defence conference. And she was talking with Emma from the Radioactive Show. And for listeners that aren't aware, the Radioactive Show uh, is broadcast every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., and it discusses nuclear, peace and energy issues. And that's uh, one to be tapping into at the moment because there seems to be a lot happening in that space. And uh, coming up later in the year in December, uh, October rather, uh, there's a big Disrupt Land Forces event happening in Mianjin. That's on the 1st to the 7th of October. Uh, And that will be uh, a huge action to resist militarism militarism and the multiple harms of warfare so uh yeah if anyone's interested in following up that uh, i'm sure you'll be able to catch uh some material on the radioactive show and now we're going to go to our next segment we're going to be speaking with a guest about father's day and the role of fathers and their mental health so father's day is on again this sunday and with it The expectation of smiles and celebration. But being a father does not always bring showers of happiness. And when things feel rough, it is good to know that there are avenues of support. So this morning we're going to hear from a family and parenting expert who specialises in supporting new and expecting parents with the emotional challenges around pregnancy and birth. Julie Bornenkoff is a clinical psychologist who has worked across primary and tertiary settings with people from vulnerable and diverse communities. She currently leads the team at PANDA, also known as the Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, which supports the mental health and well-being of new and expecting parents. She joins me now to talk about the particular mental health challenges experienced by fathers and those in fathering roles and the support services available to help. Good morning, Julie. How are you? Very well. How are you?
6: Really well, thank you, on this cold morning in Melbourne.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to breakfast. Can we start off by uh, asking you to explain what is meant by the term perinatal and what makes this period so emotionally challenging for new and expecting parents?
0: Most
6: definitely. So when we talk about perinatal, um, the perinatal period, we're talking about the period where the the couple are pregnant um, or the family are pregnant. And then we're talking about the 12 months to 24 months following on from the birth of their baby. Um, And, you know, as many people who have known or been through that time in their life know, you know for some it starts even pre-pregnancy and the lead up to planning to have a baby but all of the pressures that people experience all of the the joys and the family you know connections, but then all of the overwhelming feelings throughout that period put so much pressure on the individual at the time.
2: Yeah it's a huge uh, period of change and Mm-hmm. Sort of without realising it, you bring a lot of pre-existing expectations and sort of mapping about how you expect things to, to be. And uh, it rarely it goes exactly to plan. <laughs>
6: Oh, exactly, you know, and as we talk to our callers to our national helpline, which, you know, Panda delivers and has delivered for many years, nobody comes to the parenting period, as you just said, without bringing forward their back pack of crap, as I like to call it, <laughs> um, that has all of those historical, you know, influences, the way you were parented, the things that you're pressurised in life, and, you know, there's lots of those for everyone right now um, that, you know, impact on you in this time.
2: Yeah, and then you add all the your own parents' expectations yeah. and the messages and advice you get from every second person you bump into at the yeah. at the time. Yeah. So how aware and prepared are new and expecting fathers for the emotional side of parenting?
6: Yeah, look I'm really pleased to see that or say, you know, that we are starting to see more dads open up but also understand that for them, the rockiness of the ups and downs and the love and the hate of being an expecting or new parent are kind of more forefront and, um, you know, centre of their mind. Historically, the focus has always been on the mum and that we've kind of, as a country, but also internationally, been exploring mum's mental health and wellbeing throughout all of their normal health checks and all of the appointments that mums have. But we're now realising that for, in order to have a healthy mum, you have to have a healthy partner that's supporting them. And for them, some of people that's a dad and for some that's a, you know, a same-sex birth a partner. You know, these it's families, as we know, are so different right now. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. But we do know that the impacts for dads um, or partners are you know, there and that they experience exactly the same mental ups and downs and they need to be supported during this period.
2: And what feelings do you find cause the most distress and challenge in these early years?
6: So we know that, you know, generally the feelings of anxiety and depression are most, you know, uh, prevalent and most common for dads. Um, and when we talk about those, we, you know, are talking about that really increased feeling of stress, of pressure, not being able to let go of the thoughts around, you know, what kind of dad I'm going to be, whether I'm going to be good at it, whether I'm going to be connected, whether I'm going to be able to support them financially is a big one for people calling a helpline right now. Um, you know, whether or not the issues I encountered throughout my life are going to come back to sort of haunt a new parent. Um People who and dads who are experiencing pressure at this time, we know, have a tendency to overwork during the pregnancy period while they try to find a way to feel functional, um, because ultimately new parents are entering a whole new identity phase of their life, and as we know, when we take on a new identity or change our identity, we need to find confidence in that. Um, and that takes time. So the pregnancy period is a really difficult one when people feel disconnected and withdrawn from the usual things that they like to do in life, but also are trying to cling to the things that make them feel functional. And that's quite normal during this period.
2: Mm. And I read that um, sometimes feelings of shame and isolation can result Mm -hmm. during this, this period, and that can also make people less likely to sort of share what's going on and to mask their true sense of well-being? Mm,
6: Most definitely. And, you know, as a society, we all try to avoid the things that do us harm or hurt us. And so, as you said, those feelings of disconnect from the usual things that somebody would enjoy or those feelings that they're not doing a good job or maybe failing in some way, are things that we as natural human beings want to be avoiding. Um, So, unfortunately, the way that people tend to do that is withdrawing from social connections, withdrawing from the things that make them feel good about themselves, like they're going to the gym or engaging with sports or getting out, you know, in the fresh air. Um, People tend to bury themselves away and overwork when they're feeling like this, especially our dads. And all of those things, when you think about them, you know, as one big kind of way of coping, really do go against people feeling healthy and well. But we also know that dads are kind of already on the back foot in that they just don't have as good a language at explaining what it is they're going through. You know, they've not been taught historically um, for many of the dads of this generation around how to explain when they're feeling vulnerable or how to have those conversations. Um, And they know from, you know, those that call our helpline that they're expected to be the rockers of family and they find that really overwhelming.
2: Mm, I was going to ask you about those traditional sort of masculine social Mm. constructs and and where you feel society is at in breaking down those tropes.
6: I think, you know, the conversations I get to have as a CEO of an organisation that does this amazing work in this space is really showing all that. Uh, we are no longer expecting dads to be, you know, taking up those roles of not mm. being able to express themselves or reach out for help. And we also know for mums calling our helpline and partners that they, you know, acknowledge and understand that dads are struggling and really want to be able to support guiding them to the right, you know, help um, and understandings around what it is they're experiencing. And, you know, we're also really noticing a trend in more and more dads reaching out for help and acknowledging that they don't have the right words to do so, to explain what it is they're going through. So Panda, as an example, has a really great mental health checklist on their website for new and for expecting dads, which goes through 30 questions and then gives them a printout to give them some of that language to be able to then have a conversation or seek support. And we know dads are really benefiting from having access to that.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. And just related to that, uh, it's not always easy for people to distinguish between what are normal feelings and behaviours. And, you know, you do get lots of people around you during those birth, pregnancy, early years who are trying to be positive, I suppose, yeah. and sort of an understanding. But in, at the same time, uh, it might make it difficult for you to, to know whether what you're feeling is uh, something that's going to pass or whether it's more serious and you need to reach out um, so that sounds like a really good tool that you have on your website to assist uh, parents identify I, I guess what they're going through and to give them that vocabulary and, and a sort of a guideline to, to, to where um, they need to, to go with their thoughts and actions.
6: Yes, most definitely. And, you know, we know that there's every symptom that you would normally identify around anxiety and depression is also one of the byproducts of having a new baby, you know, whether it's disrupted sleep or not being able to find time to care for yourself, not being able to eat, you know, all of those things we know are just disrupted when you have a new baby and you're focusing in on that little buck, whether you're, you know, mentally well or not. Um, So you're exactly right. And having access to tools and supports like PANDA is so important at this
2: time. And I wanted to also ask you about inclusiveness because, as we know, we sort of talk about fathers as if they're a monolithic Mm -hmm. single group, but there is such a diversity of people uh, performing different roles, different circumstances, biological, -biological. non-biological. What are the additional social barriers faced by people that are operating in non-traditional family structures and how do you work to make this an inclusive space for everybody?
6: Yeah, uh, look, it's such a great question and look at Panda, we're really proud of the work that we get to do with our LGBTIQ plus families and our families who feel themselves that they just don't fit the norm and, you know, really what is normal in today's society um, you know our team love to do the work that they get to do with any individual that calls a helpline um, and we know that families and, and couples and parents come in all shapes and sizes um, but you're exactly right you know societally when we look at even rappers in the supermarket you know on baby products they're all a man and a woman smiling brightly generally blonde you know with their babies and is happy um, so societally we set up people to, you know, really feel this sense of failure regardless of how they identify, Um, because not many people do identify with the marketed and kind of cultural images that we portray. Um, I think regardless of that, we know the experience of, you know, non-traditional parents and, you know, same-sex parents are very much, you know, the same experience that we have for um, dads in terms of their scores on any of our symptoms in the trees. Um, But when we start to layer trauma and access to care issues and non-inclusive practice so that when people do get, you know, the guts to go out and seek support, that, that they're not then being, you know, outed or treated differently or having to educate the healthcare provider. Those pressures just you know, place significant burden onto people. And we really want the space to be one where it doesn't matter who you are, you get access to care and that your mental health and well-being is Mm. assessed. and, you know, that you're given the right supports. And PANDA is really proud to be one of those supports for all communities.
2: Yes, and you talked about the tool for identifying um, your mental health status. What are the other services that are offered by PANDA to parents and families? Yeah, so Panda,
6: as I said, has a mental health checklist that sits on our website that people access through all hours of the day and night. Um, We also have an amazing range of tools and resources that are used by community and used by health professionals on our website. So if you do know somebody you think that's struggling, you can go online and get some information to give them. Uh, we also have a Panda Learning Hub that houses, you know, community education and, and resources there for people to be able to do at their own pace um, that can allow them either to support other people in their mum's group or themselves um, or their partners. Um, and we have a national helpline, which anyone can call between the hours of 9am and 7.30pm Monday uh, to Friday, soon Saturday, and that's via one 306, and we have an amazing team of counsellors who have both clinical or lived experience or, and lived experience um, and they man our helpline and provide really great support to getting people uh, onto our service and support, understanding what it is they're going through, providing them with some support and then connecting them up with local services in the event that they don't want to continue on to seek support from our team.
2: That sounds fantastic. So um, definitely uh, reach out if you feel like those services are of, of help in your situation. Thank you very much for sharing all of that with us, Julie. It's a really important role that you're performing and it's great to see that there's an organisation de- dedicated just to that very vital uh, but uh, what can be quite afraid time of to new and expecting parents in all their uh, forms and family structures so thank you very much and uh, we'll be putting uh, those helpline numbers and information notes in our uh, program show notes thanks so much thank you julie and we're gonna
0: take a short break now when we come back we're going to hear from richard Keane, the ceo of living free
2: The Sohamasmi Centre for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year long season of solo and group Odissi dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odissi music ensemble. Odissi is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasme.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria, and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour.
1: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au
7: Tune in to Stick Together.
8: All about workers' rights and social justice.
6: 8.30am Wednesday, 7am, Saturday.
4: Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au.
5: Seasons wait for no one. Get in the garden, have some fun. Plant your seeds, yum yum, springtime's here.
0: you're listening to 3cr breakfast uh we just heard from the zucchini clan with seasons um, now we're going to hear from James on 3CR's In Your Face. Uh, he caught up with Richard Keane, the CEO at Living Free. Um, and so I'll hand over to James.
7: Richard, welcome to the show. Good afternoon and thanks for the opportunity to come in for a chat.
8: It's great to see you. God, your activism goes back to the early 90s in the living with HIV
7: sphere. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same, eh? Yeah, I think so. uh um... The things we're going to discuss today kind of um, in some ways have been a bit triggering for some members of our community that were around that time and saw the stigma around HIV, particularly with the focus on MSM populations. And um, I guess probably what I want to achieve by this chat today is to just um, kind of gently bring that in and and replace it with some facts and remind people of the resilience and strength that they had in those days and that we can tap into that again with this current issue.
8: Absolutely, which of course is
7: monkeypox.
8: The monkeypox vaccine rollout has begun in Australia. Uh, tell us about the eligibility for the vaccine for people living with HIV.
7: Okay, there's a pretty broad eligibility criteria, um, but particularly people from my community, people living with HIV, um, people who uh, generally have more than, might be high risk with a um, range of different partners over a period of time and other things like that. So, um, and particularly from my perspective, um, The priorities in my advocacy with the department have been around, first of all, healthcare workers that are gonna be on the front line and potentially exposed to people coming in. And then with the small amounts of vaccination that we've got of us, a bit of a priority be put on those people who have struggled to maintain an undetectable viral load over time or might have advanced HIV illness. And I guess the other key message we wanted to get out today um, because those people may have more severe illness if they come in contact with the virus, um... But we also have about 10% of the HIV population who are living with HIV undiagnosed. And um, we've seen a big fall off over the last two years, as you could imagine, with regular testing for HIV. And it's just a really great opportunity to remind people that if they think they have had an exposure event, it's really important to go along and get that test because people can live a very happy and healthy long life with HIV today. And um, you can certainly reduce the severity of impacts of uh, things like monkeypox going around if you're aware. Of
8: your status. Wow, 10% undiagnosed. Mm. That's
7: big. It's huge. And it's been sitting like that for a very long time. And that's because um many areas of our population, you know, in, in urban areas and everything else, um, and and great sexual health campaigns around testing every three months for people who are sexually active and a whole range of other things. But that's dropped off particularly over the last couple of years, as has you know, to be honest, a bit of sexual activity and stuff like that with all our lockdowns and everything else. But um, I advise anybody who thinks that even in the last three or four or five years that they might have had an exposure event um, to go along and, you know, take that anxiety off your mind and go and get that test because it's not like it was 30 or 40 years ago. In relation to monkeypox,
8: are all people with HIV eligible for for the vaccine? Yes, they are. And how many doses are currently available for the Living With HIV community in Victoria?
7: Well, it's broadly distributed amongst MSM because it's not just HIV-positive people um, that may come into contact with this and have a severe um, reaction to it. Um, All MSM, uh, and including trans and gender-diverse people who have sex with men and a whole range of other communities, are eligible. We have about 3,500 doses allocated. And I've spent most of this week you know, just gently engaging with people who found it really hard to get an appointment. Um, a bit like COVID, when we had the vaccine roll out, um, it'll be a bit clunky for a couple of weeks. So I'm just here to remind people to be patient and persistent. Um, this morning, Thorn Harbour Health, our f- a fellow um, HIV organisation here in Victoria, up on their website at thornharbour.org, um, there's an expression of interest form that you can fill out. So as vaccine becomes more available, they will contact you and let you know that you can come in it's been very um, patchy so um, uh, there's kind of four centers high caseload clinics including Northside clinic Paran market clinic center clinic which is associated with thorn harbour health and um, And those doses are slowly coming in in dribs and drabs. So it's been a a little bit of a a challenge in this first couple of weeks, um, particularly with the information getting out there about the rollout. The actual implementation of it can sometimes run a little bit slower and clunky behind that. And there's a lot of people with high anxiety. Also, other um, community members that will be prioritised are uh, MSM who are particularly going to travel in the next three months overseas, they will be right high at the priority list because the outbreaks in particularly North America and Europe um, are, are pretty severe. So those priority populations will be key and, and stand in first line.
8: And of course, 21,500 doses are arriving in the country sometime in
7: September. Yeah, and then another big lot in December. So the idea, and, and look, you've got to acknowledge, considering that we didn't have any stock of this, the rate. Rapid kind of resolve of the government to move, um, I think, needs to be acknowledged. And um, our community um, should be really thankful for the quick action that they've gone to try and locate these vaccinations and put those orders in as production around the world starts to step up for this vaccination.
8: Of course, the one they're using is a relatively new vaccine. What do we know about its
7: efficacy? Uh, It's really good. Um, So, for HIV positive people, the suggestion to get the most benefit out of it is to have a booster at least four weeks after your initial um, vaccination shot. Um, and uh, so it's, um, it's quite effective in a whole lot of ways and certainly can reduce the severity of illness. And I know that there are some doses that are set aside for people that may have been exposed or for uh, people who may be um, living with somebody who's been exposed to monkeypox and it can be used in the same way that we use PEP as a post-exposure drug as well so if people do become infected with it and I strongly suggest um, to our listeners that if they do believe that they have come in contact with somebody with the virus to reach out and engage with their GP or to Melbourne Sexual Health and um, kind of call ahead so people can prepare so you can be taken care of in the safest way and um, yeah go in because that vaccine will also reduce the severity and the length of um, infection
8: so it's two doses at least 28 days apart
7: and that at the moment will be dependent on the amount of vaccine that we have like I said to you it's coming in in dribs and drabs it won't um, necessarily reduce the effectiveness if it's a bit longer than that 28 days but um, it's best to have a booster for HIV positive people
8: and should positive people have their booster close to 28 days? I, I, I sense there's, or I've heard that there's more, there's more. Um, uh, I guess, you know, need for them to have it closer to the 28 days? Or yeah, is and not particularly
7: the, the follow-up booster. Yeah. It's really, really important because um, the efficacy for people who might be immunosuppressed um, is a whole lot better with that second dose. And I know that um, a lot of work's been done um, engaging with uh, organizations across the globe, including in San Francisco, where they've been kind of doing one dose, uh, but two doses for HIV positive people. So just to ensure that we've got the maximum protection that we can and the maximum efficacy from that var- uh, from that vaccination.
8: Of course, the Biden administration has been criticised for being too slow to react to monkeypox. There's been criticisms that there aren't enough vaccines available in the US for demand. Uh, there's fears that case numbers have got out of control. Uh, there's been criticism that vaccines aren't being made available Available in developing countries. Mm. Um, it sounds like in Australia we haven't kind of hit that space yet where the government needs to be criticised like the Biden administration mm. is. Is that no, their comment? No, I
7: don't think so. I think they've reacted pretty quickly to be honest, as I was saying before, and um, we should feel very grateful that there's been a very rapid response. I think particularly with the focus coming on World Pride in 2023 in Sydney, there was um, an added urgency because we will have a lot of overseas travellers coming into the country for that fantastic celebration and event. Um, uh, And it's about getting ahead of the game, I think, from the government's point of view to ensure that we have the highest coverage um, because it's not a very pleasant thing to go through. Mm.
8: So 450,000 doses Mm. have been ordered for Australia. That's really interesting about World Pride in Sydney in 2023 with people coming from overseas. Of course, they won't have Medicare cards. Um, I guess we don't know yet what the government's policy is going to be about vaccinating overseas visitors.
7: No, I don't think so. All the requirements for that either for entry, We're, we're not sure. I'm sure those things will be worked out. We're very early in our response, and I guess that's the other thing I just wanted to do today. There's a lot of hysteria around it, and particularly the stigma. And the name itself, I know that Living Positive Victoria has decided, even though we did one uh, Monkey Pox article on our website, um, we've decided to not use that term and we're just calling it MPXV, as you will also see on Thorn Harbour Healths and other websites as well, just to kind of move away. And um, I was a bit disappointed to see the World Health Organisation open up a competition to change the name. And apparently the number one suggestion now is Poxy McPockface, which is just, do you know what i I mean, it's like someone takes some leadership and just make a decision internally and, and kind of send that stuff out there because it's not, not very helpful. Um, and at, to say what you were saying before, too, it is a global problem. Um, uh, monkeypox was kind of endemic in Central and West Africa and... Um, Over the last couple of years, as with everywhere, you know, everything's ground to a halt, including some vaccination programs um, across those countries and everything else, and all of a sudden it's kind of got into urban areas and kind of, as a result, flown out, so...
8: So you think changing the name or calling it its other name, its more technical name, you think that actually removes
7: the stigma? Oh, maybe it might be a bit late now because we've seen it wall to wall and, you know, today's media is even different than it was uh, 30 years ago. Everything's about that clickbait and the headline and the more outrageous you can get and the more kind of controversial you can get, the likelihood that someone's going to click on that for the information. And I guess the other message I want to get out today is when we do see information come out, um, I'll refer people to uh, the Department. Health Department of Victoria health um, their health website there Um, they have great information that they'll be updating fortnightly. So currently we have 36 cases in Victoria. Um, There have been a couple of local transmission, but the contact tracing has been really really quick. Uh, If you do come in contact with that and you test positive for monkeypox, you're asked to um, self isolate for 21 days, which is a big effort when we think about um, the. Uh, kind of stressing everything that people have been through over the last couple of years. It's a big call, but organisations like Thorn Harbour Health and ourselves will be around to support people and ensure that their needs are met if they are required to self-isolate for that period.
8: So that infrastructure is in place, not yeah. just from the uh, HIV surge of cases days in the 80s when that great contact tracing infrastructure was put in place, but also from COVID.
7: Yeah it is and i hope that we've learnt the lessons some of the lessons from COVID, and they'll be applied across um this situation and intervention i think one of the most um things that i still find concerning is we know that through COVID, it was those communities at the margins multicultural communities other people um that may not have english as their first language and trying to engage um in that framework has been really challenging for them and I hope we've learned a few lessons and then it's not just uh white gay men that are kind of at the front of the queue because of their strong health literacy and kind of connectedness into the system so um I'm sure that there'll be some messaging going out and um I think we are in the infancy of the response now. I've found it a little bit frustrating to kind of navigate this space myself, even with all the experience that we have. Um, But I just want to assure people that we are really committed to kind of working with government and working with our sector partners to get the best result we can for our community.
8: And it's not a sexually transmitted disease. It can be, but it's really just close physical contact and even sharing bedding.
7: Yeah, it is. And, And it's all that stuff about clothes and bedding and washing that. But that, again, when I was talking about those stigma triggers, that comes back to those horrible conversations that we had in the 80s and early 90s about cups and saucers and sharing plates and spoons and, you know, those really basic messages that that need to be reinforced. And I'm sure that will come as part of this as we get to know a little bit more about it. um so i I think it's really really important to stay abreast of reliable information so go to thorn harbour health's website go to living positive victoria's website and primarily go to the health department's website as those um updates will happen every fortnight um and i said to you they probably won't happen more than that because um some of that information becomes redundant very quickly as we learn more and more and more And, you know, from what I've read,
8: household transmission is, you know, pretty much non-existent, you know, so you don't get it from
7: sharing those cups and sauces. No, you don't. But um, clothing and bedding, particularly that's covered an infected sore or something like that, um, but that can be um, kind of mitigated by hot water washing and a whole range of other things. Similar isolation um, to COVID, wearing a mask and other things like that, because coughing, it can be in saliva and other things like that. So it's about... Probably following the same principles that we had with COVID. If you lived in a share house and other things like that, you know, you just isolate yourself pretty much from the rest of the other people around you. And that pro- support and guidance will be provided by the department if you do, you know, uh, come into contact with monkeypox. But as I said, um, 36 cases in Victoria, it's not out of control at the moment but um the ability of the government to seek and source um large amounts of vaccine as it's being as production ramps up across the globe um I'm really proud of the fact that they've been out in the front and that we have early access to this before it's out of control.
8: Richard Keane from Living Positive Victoria thank you so much for popping into 3CR and chatting with me today. Thank you. You're
0: listening to 3CR Breakfast, and as you just heard, that was Richard Keane talking to 3CR's James McKenzie on In Your Face. They were talking about MPXV. All right, and next up we're going to be talking with Carly Finlay about a new Disability and Arts Festival coming up in Melbourne next month. Uh, We're going to take a very quick break, but we'll be back with you shortly. (music) You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that was Double Dare from Adelita. Next up, we're joined by award-winning writer, speaker, and appearance activist, Carly Finlay, who's here to tell us about a new festival coming to Melbourne in September, Alta State. It's an art and disability festival, which explores deaf and disability-led art from Australia and Aotearoa. So, without further ado, good morning and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast, Carly. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. This festival looks really exciting. So, it was developed by yourself and artists Joshua Pether and Rodney Bell. Um, It looks like there's a whole mix of stuff dance, circus, film, um, there's a digital component as well as the live events. Um, Can you tell us about how the name came about, Alter State?
9: Uh, This is one I can't answer.
0: Ah, My apologies. (laughs)
9: <laughs> it was developed before we came on board. It was always called that, but I believe... I mean, this is a altering the state of the art. Like, the arts is very ableist, very exclusive often. Um, that's a big generalisation. I know I work in the arts, but, you know, we need to alter the state of the art to include disabled people and deaf people. We need to make sure that artists and audiences alike are included and accommodated from the very start. So I think it's around that.
0: (laughs) Well, that sounds like a very good explanation to me for someone who wasn't behind (laughs) the name. (laughs) Um, Maybe you can tell us more about what you were a part of in the development of this festival.
5: Yes,
9: sure. So uh, with Josh, Rodney and also Amani and Price, um, we came together over a few days, three days in November 2019, which was very, very far, long, long ago, far away in our minds now, since the, the pandemic. but a lifetime together. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we came together to talk about how we would like the festival to look um, as a disability-led festival we developed principles for the festival for how the festival will run and ask the um, partners of the festival so like Big Health um, Arts Access Victoria um, other organisations we ask them to adhere to those principles too. So some of the principles include like we will run on Crip Time. Crip Time means that it's not moving too fast, it's moving at speed, our bodies and minds allow and if we don't get everything done then that's okay Um, another one of the principles were that um, disability pride and identity that at the forefront of everything we do Uh, lots of the time you say disabled identity deaf identity is Um, a raise, because people think it's a bad thing. But we really want to show that, you know, we have disability pride, that artists have disability pride. It doesn't mean that it's all of your identity, um, but it it means that we acknowledge that disability is part of an identity and and we can be prideful in being disabled. Um, So, yeah, we developed the principles And we also um, really got to talk about how we would like the festival to be, you know, like um, a bit slower than, uh, you know, a non-disabled led festival where everything is spread over four weeks. That's really important as well
0: yeah yeah absolutely i was um yeah reading through the principles um last night, and yeah, there's a whole heap of them and I was really interested by the crypt time one in particular um I think yeah. often we time we have such an expectation of um how long something's gonna take, and uh, yeah. I think that's worth uh investigating like why does it need to take this set amount of time and often yeah, absolutely. um
9: absolutely and and I think that needs to
0: be applied in everything we do really yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and can you tell us about some of the artists and the performers who are part of Ultra um,
9: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, firstly, uh, Rodney Rodney Bell is going to come over here from Aotearoa to perform a dance piece that is um, based on his life. Um, Rodney has had a very, um, I guess, tumultuous life at times, um, he has been homeless, he's been a busker, um, and he's disabled. And he's an incredibly gentle and knowledgeable and compassionate man to work with and, and to be friends with. And, yeah, there's a, a dance piece that features, you know, aspects of his life. I think that's a a really important one. Um, we also have the... Um, The Women's Circus, Momentum, um, which is uh, a piece that is by an ensemble of disabled and I think non-disabled artists as well. This will be on the forecourt of the Arts Centre um, and the main main lawn. and, the, yeah, the main for forecourt from the 15th to 19th of September. Um, we got a little preview of the Women's Circus at um, the launch, the program launched back in July. I think one of the things I really like is seeing how disabled bodies move compared to non-disabled bodies, because we're so used to seeing that. And it was really, really beautiful seeing different shapes and sizes and movements in that. Um, another thing that's happening is um, come and make performance, uh, which is abbreviated to camp. and it's a series of workshops for participants um, from youth, for youth arts, arts organisations, Western Edge platform Youth Arts in St. Martin's. and that's, yeah, that yeah that's that's super exciting that you know there's art making available. There, you know, people can make art, not only watch art, which is great. The other film festival is going to be there as well, which is really exciting. Um, I feel like that was my introduction to disability arts way back 10 years ago when I was a judge at the other film festival. Um, so, yeah, there'll be films there. I just saw that Jodie Mundy and Sophia Golan will be um, premiering their work Um which is called Invisible Touch around deaf culture. Um, And there's going to be a conference called Meeting Place happening as well, and that's run by Arts Act Australia, um, which is, yeah, super exciting.
0: Excellent. Yeah, it sounds like a real mix. And so um, people attending the festival can take part in some of these um, uh, segments of the festival, is that right?
9: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is going to be, as I mentioned before, you know, it's a slow festival across four weeks. Um, And it's a hybrid festival as well, which means that it's going to be available online and in person, uh, which is really important to disabled people because the pandemic isn't over, Um, we're still at risk. And so for people to be able to participate from a screen is really important. Um, yeah, that, that's super important. And I think also it's a time for disabled people to come together and and meet and socialise and talk around big
0: issues. Yeah. Excellent. And yeah, you talked um, a bit about how the pandemic isn't over. And I think we saw the way a lot of um, festivals and events take place changing during that time. Um, Is that something you've taken particular notice of as someone with a disability? Have you noticed more opportunities now and people kind of uh, broadening their thinking around events and how they can um, happen and be more accessible to people?
9: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the world changed really quickly because everybody needed the change. Disabled people have been requesting, um, you know, work-from-home provisions online options for very many years. And when the pandemic hit, these things came. And, um, but I do think in some cases, um, some organizations are taking that away because there is a belief that the pandemic is over, but it's not. So yeah, I think it's been very beneficial for people. I know like working in the arts and talking to artists and audiences, it's often the first time um, an artist or an audience member could experience the art in the pandemic because, you know, they haven't been able to get in the door many times because the place has been inaccessible. So that's really important. So It's important we, we keep that.
0: Oh, still there, Carly? Yes, I am. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. And, yeah, even when the pandemic is over, if there is an end in sight, I think, um, yeah, it's really important we keep these different um, levels of access there and so yeah. many things which are kind of seen as too hard or costly suddenly um, uh, were made to happen during the pandemic. So I think when we've seen how it can happen, there's no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> um, the festival is all local artists, is that right? So it's all um, artists from Australia now, era? That's
9: right. Um, Was that yeah. um,
0: intentional or will you be looking to sort of broaden the sphere in the future? Uh,
9: well, I hope to. But yeah, I think that it is h- in, intentional. There actually, um, Oily Cut is from the UK, and they're um, working with Polyglot to do When the World Turns, um, which is um, yeah, which is a cross yeah cross nation collaboration. So yeah, I think that um, I think for now, like. During, because of the pandemic, it was hard to know who can travel. And like, I haven't seen Rodney and Josh since 20, 2019 because we've sort of all met online. So I think that that is one of the things that was taken into account when planning pro- the program, you know, that um, we might have only been able to support uh, local artists at this stage because of the travel bubble, because of the travel rules. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, it certainly makes planning hard. <laughs> and um, could you talk a little about some of the ways in which the festival is accessible? I think um, for people yeah. who maybe don't think a lot about disability or accessibility, they might be aware of things like making the festival online as well or having yeah, ramps, yes. but there's so many ways, right? Yeah, there's
9: definitely making the festival online, um, which, you know, a hybrid festival helps. Um People attend from a distance, from remotely. Um, the other thing is that events are going to be online interpreted. Uh, I think on, if they're online, they'll be live captioned. Um, there'll be audio described events as well, which means that for people who are blind and have low vision, um, an audio describer will make sure they say what's happening in the event, like describe what, what features. Of the artist or of the performance uh, um you know not visible by blind or low vision person and so describing it will help um, people know what is happening um having relaxed performances so changing the lighting changing the um way audiences can come and go if they need on in a relaxed performance that's really an important thing um and also having the you know, I guess the, the crypt time is really important as well, that we'll do things in the time it takes rather than being constrained to um, really strict protocols. You know, you've got to be in and out in an hour,
0: yeah. Excellent. Um, and um, for you personally, you identify as a proud disabled woman. Um, yeah. I'm curious, have you always identified as a disabled woman?
9: No, I have not, but I have always been disabled. Um, I was born with a rare, severe skin condition called ichthyosis, and when I was young, I never saw anyone in the media with the condition. I never saw, I never met anyone in person, um, and I really only saw disability on the news, um, on tabloid TV programs, as being quite negative. And I also saw it in terms of sport as well. And no, none of that applied to me, and I didn't really know I could you know, that I was disabled because I wasn't given support at high school like other disabled people were or primary school. Um, and it took me meeting other people with a disability or chronically ill to um realise that yes I am disabled, yes I enjoy all of these different, you know, forms of ableism and lots of hospital time and time off work and specialists and all that. And uh, yeah, net lots
0: of disabled people that kind of affirmed my identity yeah excellent and um we are running out of time but just quickly do you think um events like this are important or helpful for people who um it gives them a broader idea of what disability might mean or um shows how disability might be something that informs who you are or what you do but doesn't have to be something that's uh boxes you into one identity I suppose.
9: Yeah absolutely I think it's really important for disabled people firstly who who are kind of you know not sure about their identity um, to come together and meet and also for non-disabled people to change their perception of disability to show what can be done um, and to show what um, is possible with accessibility as well you know like lots of people will say oh we don't have the budget or we don't have the time to create accessibility and yet and no, this proves that we that, that it is possible to share accessibility for varying disabilities as well. So, yeah.
0: Excellent. All right. And um, finally, how can people get along to the festival or get involved? Give us all the details. Yeah, well, check
9: out the Arts Centre Melbourne website, artscentermelbourne.com.au for tickets. Um, tickets are on sale right now, which is exciting. Um, As I said before, you can take part online or in person, Um, and it is from the 12th of September to the
0: 9th of October. Excellent. All right, we'll check it out and we'll post those links on our website. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Carly.
9: Thank you for having me.
0: That was Carly Findlay, a writer, speaker and appearance activist here to talk to us about Alter State, a new disability and arts festival on in Melbourne next month. Um, Though you don't have to be in Melbourne because it's also online or a lot of components are, including uh, the dance performance from Rodney Bell. Sounds
2: really interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. um, I'll definitely get along to some of the events there, I think. All right, and um, we are out of time this morning, I'm afraid, but a big thank you to all our guests this morning. Um, thank you to In Your Face for sharing that segment with us this morning.
2: And the Radioactive Show team for bringing us the uh, Wage Peace Organisation's uh, story.
0: Yep, absolutely. All right, we'll be back with you next week. Uh, in the meantime, stick around for Stick Together.
1: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.